Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Well, I'm here on New Jersey Transit. We're heading back to New York City from Princeton after attending the Tri-State Metabolism Meeting, which was interesting. Something a little outside of cancer, but there was some cancer there. <laughs> but I'm here with Dr. Sarah LaBeouf, who is a postdoc in the Papa Yanakopoulos lab at NYU, where I, disclaimer, currently work as a research technician and lab manager. We're on a train, so there's not much to do. There's not too much of an interesting countryside to look at between Princeton, New Jersey, and Penn Station in New York, so I figured we'd do something something new for this podcast, which would be a, a mobile chat of sorts. So, hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sim. Thanks for having me on your mobile podcast. <laughs> no problem. So, Sarah, usually, usually I start by talking about current research that the scientist lab does or what they do and then kind of work my way backwards into how they got started but maybe this time because it's such a different different scenario here we're moving backwards on a train we we are seated the opposite way that's why i'm saying that the opposite direction of the chain trains movement so why don't we start with how you got interested in science well since we're moving backwards i'll talk forwards <laughs> Um, I started, well, I got interested in science when I was really young. I think I had a really good biology teacher in middle school. I was really excited by doing Punnett squares, the really easy <laughs> genetic frequency calculation. Okay. Punnett squares are where it's at, man. <laughs> yeah. And for those who don't know, because, you know, I, I obviously know exactly what a Punnett square is. What is a Punnett square? So, it's a simple way to determine, uh the genotypes for offspring based on what their parents are. Essentially, you write, you know, the genotype, if they're dominant, heterozygous, recessive, whatever the parents, you make a box, and then you make all the possible combinations. Anyway, that's not science you do in real life. (laughs) But in the seventh grade, it was great. (laughs) Yeah. So, science that you don't do in real life is what inspired you to do real science that you do do in real life? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. (laughs) So where did you go after the punnet squares? You know, I kept punneting. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so when I entered into college, I wanted to study biology, and um, I went to University of Texas at Austin. Go Longhorns. Represent. Um, and they had just started a program called the Freshman Research Initiative, which was uh, geared at getting students immediately involved in doing actual research in the lab so it was kind of this whole program the first semester you kind of did like this basic intro into like how research is done with a lecture and kind of a lab class where you kind of came up with your own experiments um but then in the second semester you actually matched into what they called streams which were um labs and and actual pis that hosted them which they had these special kind of offshoots geared um, so that a large group of undergraduates could actually ask real research questions and do experiments within the broader um, kind of like scope of you know their own research, what they already had going on. So I started doing that as a freshman. And are these programs that um, are available across a lot of universities? Is this something specific to your undergraduate university? Um, I think now the programs, they may have expanded. So I know when I started... Um, it was, I think, an initiative of the NIH, so, like, UT Austin actually got, like, money funded. 
um, because it was kind of like a test to see, you know, what programs would best help, you know, get undergrads emerged in research and, like, stay in research for a long period of time. So I know at that time there were several different universities that kind of had, like, a similar idea, um, but different programs and different ways of, like, going about doing it. Um, so I think now there might be a couple more places that kind of do this type of thing. Um, but it was kind of, you know, a unique situation, and that's something that a lot of people were offering. Mm-hmm. So the exposure early on, how, I guess, because me, for example, I did not have the opportunity to work in a biology lab in my undergraduate degree, and I feel like a lot of people do have the opportunity, but how do you think it helped you in terms of, not obviously you gain skills in research, but how did it help kind of solidify where you were interested in or that you were that a PhD is what you wanted to pursue yeah um, so actually when I started I was a biology major but the lab I worked in was a synthetic chemistry lab so something like totally different from like what I was interested in you know more like intellectually um, but I actually really enjoyed it I mean disclaimer I hate chemistry I hated ochem it was terrible um, but the lab I was in you know I was interested in because it was something I was physically doing and um I had a lot of freedom, and, you know, as a freshman, I was, like, designing my own experiments. I had this whole project, um, and me and, you know, this one other student who were more into it, obviously, it was, a for my lab, there was, like, a class of, like, 30 kids. Not everyone stuck with it. You know, everyone did at least a year, um, but there were a couple of us that, obviously, were just, like, more inclined and really, you know, interested and inspired by what we're doing, and we got to have a lot of ownership over what we did, and we were essentially driving you know, a large project, we got a paper out of it. Um, So even though I wasn't super interested in continuing to do chemistry research, just like, you know, answering a question that no one knew the answer to, Mm -hmm. coming up with experiments to like figure it out and, you know, generating data, um, I was really interested in that. And I knew that's what I wanted to continue doing. So I stayed in that lab for two years. And at the end of those two years, I knew I wanted to keep doing research, but I wanted to transition into doing, you know, stuff that I was actually excited about intellectually and not just research for the sake of doing research. Um, So then I transitioned into doing developmental biology and um, kind of looking at, you know, more questions about, like, how, you know, changes and mutations in certain genes are affecting, um, you know, certain really basic developmental questions about, you know, how does the neural tube close in a developing embryo. Um, and so, what until, is a neural tube? Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's essentially what encloses and then forms your spinal cord. And so we studied this in frogs, and a lot of developmental labs use really basic animal models to model these types of things because they're easy to look at, easy to manipulate. And so, in a frog in a developing tadpole, you see this whole neuralation process of the process of essentially like the round embryo taking shape and part of it in going inwards invading inwards and then another part wrapping around and folding and creating this hollow tube Um, so you see that all happen on the outside of the embryo and so I was really excited about doing those types of things asking more biologically relevant questions Um, so there it was kind of a better marriage of excited about, you know, generating new results, asking unknown questions, finding, you know, data, and then also on the other side being really interested in actually the questions that I was asking. So what got you interested in developmental biology specifically? 
those Punnett squares. I it's wanted to do... The, back to the Punnett squares, right? I so it's all about the Punnett squares. I wanted to do something that was, um, you know, kind of like more related to genetics, mm -hmm. but I really didn't want to do anything that was microbiology mm. or yeast <laughs> or dealing with flies. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. as the young and innocent child I was, <laughs> I settled on... Uh, doing something in developmental biology because it was going to be a little bit more genetically related and then not having to deal with some yucky stuff that I wasn't interested in. Right. <laughs> so I think some people would make the argument that frogs are pretty yucky. So, so how, how were you attracted to the idea of working with frogs but flies were a no-go? Um, so most of the time when we were dealing with the frogs, it's through very early developmental stages. So it's from the immediately like fertilized embryo, you know, uh, for you know a couple hours after fertilization, you know, up to just before being a tadpole and they're not moving around. So the only the time that you're actually dealing with a whole frog is when you need to collect eggs to be fertilized. So that part was a little traumatizing, and we're working with big frogs. You use um, their African clawed frogs, so they're very large, and they have claws. So that part was a little traumatizing, and it was something you had to get used to, um, to want to be able to handle them, but, you know, you push past it. Okay. So with developmental biology, you mentioned that... Um, the basis for it is kind of genetics and mutations and how different mutations and certain genes go on to affect the development of the embryo, right? So that's part of it. So how, for example, and I guess you give a general answer here, how are these mutations introduced into the embryos? Okay, um, so for like different model systems, mm -hmm. you're going to use different techniques. Um, and what's a little bit trickier about working with frogs is... Um, the whole, for the species of frogs we're using, the whole genome is in sequence, so that's an issue. Um, also, um, instead of having, you know, in humans, you have two sets of matching chromosomes and all that, but you have four pairs in the frogs that we're using. So you, depending on the model you're using, you're limited by certain things. Um, so for us, we weren't doing any kind of... Um, genetically modified frogs, like the frogs themselves weren't modified, so what we ended up doing was we introduced morpholinos, we directly injected them into the embryo after fertilization to then reduce expression of different mRNAs, which are related to genes that we're interested in studying the function of. So you said you injected morpholinos? Yeah. And do those target specific mRNAs for specific genes, or all mRNAs? So you design a morpholino to be complementary to the message strand for the gene that you're interested in targeting. It's very similar to doing like shRNA in mammalian cells. It's just you know slightly different using slightly different mechanisms. So for anything that you're interested in doing, you design a morpholino, you inject it into the embryo, and then you see how that affects development. So for my project, what we were looking at, um, the lab as a whole was like super interested in how um, cilia, which are small finger-like projections from the cell membrane that um, can be motile. So something like 
They can have multiple functions. If you think about in us, we have cilia in the epithelial lining of our airway to help move mucus around. Sperm have uh, one large cilia to move. Um, and so in a developing embryo, cilia can be important for a lot of different things, particularly in the neural tube. We have a bunch of cells um, that have one single cilium on them, so only one, one of these projections. <clears throat> and they become important because uh, without cilia, the neural tube doesn't close properly. Um, also, you need cilia in certain contexts to determine patterning of an organism. So uh, as the cilia beat, they move fluid across uh, the embryo in a certain directed pattern, and that helps set up left-right patterning mm. for the whole organism. Oh, okay. wow. So we were specifically looking at how if we... Uh, affect transcription factors that are responsible for primary cilia formation, how that then affects the ability for the neural tube to close. Mm. That sounds very cool. Boom. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> that was, it was all done in frogs. That was a really long time ago. I probably, <laughs> you know, forgot some shit. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, so, after you played with frogs for a few years... <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> And then, so you decided to pursue a PhD because you decided that that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to play with frogs for the rest of your life. No, no but frogs. <laughs> frogs were done. <laughs> frogs were done. Then, so then you ended up at Scripps. Yes. So tell us about that. Um, so I applied. I went to, you know, interviewed a bunch of schools. I had decided um, I didn't really want to stay in doing developmental biology in the future. Um, you know, I thought it was really cool and, you know, a lot of the stuff was really interesting, but I kind of really wanted to be more focused on things that were relevant to human health. And, and I became interested in studying um, regulation of tumor formation and what really drives formation of cancers and, you know, really out of control growth of tumor cells that lead to metastasis and death. Um, so when I was interviewing places, that's kind of what I focused on, schools that had those programs, and I ended up at Scripps, a small graduate program in La Jolla. Um, and so there I started my PhD in breast cancer, and I ended up focusing on how changes to tumor cell metabolism affect tumor progression. Mm. So you're a metabolism expert? I mean, kind of. Not really. Don't mm. quote me. <laughs> And we just went to a metabolism meeting. So, what what is your expert opinion on some of the stuff that you saw today? Uh, so, we went to more, it was a more of a basic biology-focused meeting. And what we mean by basic biology is people that are more interested in understanding fundamental mechanisms of, like, signaling pathways and how cells work. Um, so a little bit less like disease focused, like what does this mean in the context of a disease setting and more focused on like, you know, how do changes in cells physically regulate just, you know, growth at a cellular level and signaling pathways. So, you know, interesting, but not quite my cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're right, because your cup of tea is specifically cancer metabolism. Yeah. I want to see tumors growing. <laughs> I want to see people targeting with them with drugs. <laughs> and then tumors not growing. Yeah, I want yeah. to see tumor regression. <laughs> tumor regression. Regression is the key word here. So, so during your PhD, you worked uh, on cancer metabolism, and you focused a lot on mitochondria. Yes. What can you tell us about 
the involvement of mitochondria and the perturbations of mitochondrial function and cancer progression. Basically, just you know, summarize the entire field real quick. Yeah, you know, yeah. in in a couple words, yeah. they're important. They're important. That okay. take home message: they're important. <laughs> Maybe a slightly longer description. <laughs> sure, why not? Um, so mitochondria are essentially the powerhouse of the cell. They're responsible for generating um, large amounts of energy um, and also providing important um, metabolic intermediates for cells that are proliferating to build up, we call it biomass, so essentially to generate more cells. Um, and then in the context of cancer, mitochondria are important um, also because once you start having problems with mitochondria, you can start to have a lot of detrimental effects in the cell. Um, so the mitochondria is producing a lot of energy, but while it's producing energy, it can also produce ROS, reactive oxygen species. Um, so these are uh, reactive molecules that can uh, react with other cellular components and start to damage them. So when the mitochondria aren't working at optimal efficiency, they start generating more ROS. Um, and in particular for cancer, this can be both good and bad. So the cell has a certain tolerance for ROS. So if you reach over the maximum threshold, cells are going to die. But if you kind of have some kind of low chronic level, you can create a lot of damage, which allows for in the context of like damaging to DNA, you can have mutations which could generate um, you know, potential mutations that are going to help cells uh, proliferate in stressful conditions, uh, keep proliferating when they shouldn't, um, which can lead to tumor formation. So here, this is where uh, oncogene and tumor suppressor come in. Can you talk about the differences between an oncogene and tumor suppressor? Uh, so and the difference between having a mutation in an oncogene and having a mutation in a tumor suppressor. Okay, so when we talk about oncogenes, we mean we're talking about genes that when they become more active can promote cell growth. And when we talk about tumor suppressors, we're talking about genes whose normal function is to slow down cell growth. So you can think about it like a car. Um, an oncogene is like the accelerator. And so if you have, if you're pushing your foot hard down on the gas, you're going to go faster. So if you start uh, having hyperactive oncogenes, you're going to proliferate more. Um, and then the tumor suppressor is the brake of the car to, you know, slow it down. And what happens in cancer is you have activating mutations in oncogenes to make them more active. And then you lose... Uh, the activity of tumor suppressors. So the mutations of tumor suppressors make them non-functional. So you've essentially cut the brakes on the car. You're pushing your foot down on an accelerator and you no longer can stop this. And there are different mutations in different oncogenes and different tumor suppressors in, in different cancers. Right? It's not... Cause so, for example, when people say, oh, have you guys cured cancer yet? Right? That's a bit of a silly question, right? Because there's not just one kind of yeah. cancer. So cancer is cancer is difficult in the sense that it's a really complex disease. Um, each cancer is a little bit different. Um, you can have mutations in different genes, and the combination of all of these mutations are going to give your particular cancer a certain phenotype. Um, so in general, there are a lot of things that happen that are the same across a large number of cancers. So there are a lot of oncogenes and tumor suppressors that are really commonly mutated in cancers. So um, on one hand, you know, we can kind of create 
a number of therapies that are going to have some kind of broad action. Um, but on the other hand, each cancer is going to be, a, you know, a, a little bit different to attack because it's going to also come with an uh, additional set of mutations that are going to be specific toward it. And also, each tumor is arising from a different, you know, cell of origin. So breast cancer is going to be different from lung cancer, and the fact that it's coming from a different tissue, it's in a different environment probably going to have different challenges that it needs to meet, and then also, you know, different things uh, available to it to help it grow. Yeah, that's a very, very nice description. <laughs> so, what do you work on now? Uh, so now, as a postdoc... Um, what is a postdoc? So, a postdoc <laughs> is a period of additional training after graduate school, so I already have my PhD. Um, and the idea of a postdoc in today's time is that you're going to go to another lab, get some kind of additional training. Um, you know, maybe you're going to a lab to pick up a certain skill that you really want to add that you see, like, going forward in your future career as a scientist is going to be important. Um, or, you know, you might switch to a different field. Maybe, you know, you started in uh, developmental biology, but now you also kind of have a, you know, a love of something else, or you kind of want to combine two fields together. Um, so it's this additional training period before you go on to your next step. Maybe as a PI, having your own lab, so you're gathering all the skills and the knowledge for you to start asking your own set of research questions. Um, or you're getting skills that are going to make you marketable in the biotech field. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm a postdoc. Um, <laughs> and I kind of... I kind of stayed in a similar field. I'm still doing cancer metabolism, but now I'm focusing um, on lung cancer metabolism and the lab that I chose to go to. I picked it because um, it's now more focused on uh, more genetic models of cancer. So how can we better model cancer um, using genetically modified mice um, that have mutations specific mutations that uh, happen in patients, um, and we, these, we can use these mice to really accurately model how tumors develop, um, and we're doing this in lung cancer, so how, more specifically how they develop in the lung, um, and also um, to kind of like get more into thinking about like personalized medicine. So how can we look at a tumor, understand uh, in this tumor with a certain set of mutations, how can we find uh, specific pathways that we can target and essentially kill these cancer cells? Um, so we're doing this in the context of lung cancer and also in the context of lung cancers that have um, their hyperactive um, for uh, antioxidant response. So essentially, that these lung cancer cells are programmed to make a lot of antioxidants to deal with reactive oxygen species stress. And this really helps drive their tumor growth. Um, so my projects are now focused on how, in this kind of genetic context of lung cancer, um, what happens to the metabolism of these cells, how is it rewired to support their growth, and how we can look at um, specific metabolic requirements that they may have that we could target with um, small molecule drugs to inhibit different uh, metabolic pathways. That sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm working on that stuff alongside with you, so it's, it's pretty cool, the stuff that we do, guys, just so you know. 
So I'd like to squeeze some mentoring out of you, right? Uh, maybe a bunch of mentoring. Every day, all day. Every day, all day. But especially for, for this podcast. So if you were to talk to a high school student who said, Sarah, I want to be a scientist, what should I do? What piece of advice would you give this high school student? I'd say go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people that, like, go into grad school, so you're young when you make this decision, right? You're, like, 21 years old, and I know when I was entering grad school, a lot of people didn't know what they wanted to do next, and they were kind of just like, well, I'll go to grad school. I can put off making the decision of what I actually want to do, go to grad school, do science, which I like, and still get paid. Um... <laughs> And that is not the best option. Okay. Because <laughs> grad school is really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really stressful. Um, and also, you know, there's not a... There are certain milestones that you need to hit in, in grad school. You know, you need to pass certain qualifying exams. You need to publish papers. And so you have these milestones that you need to hit, but how you're supposed to get there is not defined. Mm -hmm. um, you know, okay, you need to publish a paper. Well, that means, you know, you need to find something new. It's, but there's no formula of how to get there. Right. You go to medical school, you have a set of things of you, that you need to know, you need to learn, you take a test, you get a grade, and you know how you're doing. There's yeah. not really that same kind of feedback. Um, and so even though I love my job and I really like what I do, if I did it again, I'd go to medical school. <laughs> yeah. But so this is so okay. So what you're saying is that a lot of people who are young and are interested in science think they want to pursue research, but would more likely be suited. Maybe not medical school, but mm -hmm. I think it would be better. You know, maybe especially in biology, take a year, work as a technician, find out if that's like really what you want to do before you commit to it because it's hard. And if you go into it really thinking you want a PI, be a PI, and you want your own lab, that's really hard to achieve. I mean, only like less than 10% of people that go into grad school are actually going to get a faculty position. So if you go into there and, you know, you might be okay, but you need to be a rock star to get those positions. And I find that, you know, a lot of people... Once they're in grad school, that's when they start realizing that. And then that, that is too late. Too late. <laughs> it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> so, instead of just choose medical school over a PhD program, I guess the key thing here is to try it out before you commit to a PhD program yeah. by being a research technician or having some sort of research position. Uh, yeah. Beforehand. I mean, doing a PhD is a long commitment. You're going to be there for five years and... The, the job you're doing is hard. Um, and so why enter this program and be in a really stressful environment and take multiple years into your PhD to figure out whether or not you're actually going to be happy? Mm -hmm. Why don't you, like, figure out, what you're, figure out what makes you happy before you go? Know that that's what you want because knowing that will make it easier. Rather than being in a situation where it's super hard, you're kind of languishing, and you take a long time of being miserable before you figure out whether or not you want to do it. Um, I had several, many friends that mm -hmm. left and dropped out of the program. Oh, okay. 
Um, so essentially we all started together, um, but a lot of them left with master's degrees and pursued things completely different uh, from science. So I had a friend who was getting a PhD in chemistry. Uh, she left and works for Facebook. Oh, wow. Um, I had another friend down the hall who works uh, and does computer coding now, totally not doing science anymore. Same mm-hmm. thing for another friend. Wow. So, and they're happy. Yeah, they're okay. very happy now, uh, but they were not very happy during their PhD. <laughs> and it took them two or three years to figure that out. <laughs> so I think, like, you know, as a technician or um, especially if you don't have a lot of experience in undergrad, which mm-hmm. a lot of people don't. Um, one, try to get experience as an undergrad volunteering, work as a technician. It's a little less high pressure and stressful. You can figure out if you know you really like doing science and you enjoy the uncertainty. Right. And if not, find something you do enjoy. <laughs> well, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> Appreciate it. Always a pleasure having a fresh perspective. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for talking to me and letting me record it, which is awesome. Uh, It's always fun working with you every day. Riding backwards to move forward. Exactly. That's the New Jersey transit. (laughs) Yes. Well, fantastic. Thanks a bunch. Peace. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.